0: today i'm going to answer that infamous question what do i eat if i've been diagnosed with diabetes or metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance it's infamous because i wish i had a simple answer welcome everyone to another episode of chilling with dr Chalam i'm dr Chalam founder of Holistic and Integrative Center of Novi. Today I'm going to answer that infamous question, what do I eat if I've been diagnosed with diabetes or metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance? It's infamous because I wish I had a simple answer. And before I get into the topic, make sure you subscribe and hit the thumbs up button, share this video with someone who will benefit from it. And once again, thank you so much for all of the support for a practice like ours. support our youtube channel so we can continue to roll out content that is beneficial to you so this topic about what do i get to eat because nutrition is one of the core pillars of how you shift your health is a very difficult question to answer there's tons of research about it however I i i think the one of the ways i wanted to present this to you is to take some snippets of videos that have been around for some time just to help you understand the science behind these various diets. The three diets I'm going to talk about in this particular video, the number one is plant-based. I have excerpts from Dr. Dean Ornish and Dr. Esselstyn's talks. And then the low-carb or high-fat diet from Dr. Sarah Hallberg's famous TED talk. And the last one is the carnivore diet, which is an evolving diet, and a lot of people are moving towards it. And is there any science behind it? I'm gonna delve a little deeper into that with a video from Dr. Sean Baker. So once you watch these, I'll also present to you the science behind each of these diets so that you may be able to make that decision as to what is gonna be sustainable for you, what is gonna help you shift. And many of you may have tried some of these diets in the comments below make sure you type in what worked for you and what did not let's start with the very first diet which is the plant-based diet which has been around and studied quite extensively by a lot of folks in this particular field of nutritional sciences Dr. Dean Ornish worked on cardiovascular health, so did Dr. Esselstein, but there's a lot of information about plant-based working for metabolic syndrome and for many other conditions. Let's delve a little deeper into the information that they give to us and then I will dissect it for you and let you know when plant-based diets work and when they fail.
1: We tend to think of advances in medicine as being a new drug, a new laser, something really high-tech and expensive. And we often have a hard time believing that the simple choices that we make in our lives each day can make such a powerful difference, but they do. And in our work, we've been using very high-tech, expensive, state-of-the-art measures to prove the power of these very simple and low-tech and low-cost interventions. And you know, many people don't know that more people are dying today in most parts of the world from heart disease, diabetes, and other chronic conditions than AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria combined. And what's happening is it's drawing and diverting a lot of resources away from things that really do need drugs like AIDS, TB, and malaria to things that can be largely prevented and even reversed through simply changing uh, diet and lifestyle. And what's happening is that countries are beginning to eat like us and live like us and all too often die like us. And the irony is that the diet that we found that can reverse and even uh, prevent most of these conditions is the way that most of these countries were eating before they began to copy us. And so this is still the steep part of the curve, so intervention now can make a powerful difference. Like, what can I do as one person? Uh, but the, something as simple as what we choose to eat every day can make a difference. In the energy crisis, for example, 20% of the, of the uh, fossil fuel that we burn each day goes to uh, make processed foods, which you know, themselves are, are not so great for us. Uh, It takes 10 times more energy to eat higher on the food chain. When you're eating meat as opposed to a plant-based diet, it takes 10 times more resources to make that possible. Michael Pollan uh, calculated that a quarter pounder with cheese takes 26 ounces of petroleum and leaves a 13-pound carbon footprint, which is equivalent to burning seven pounds of coal. So the next time you're having a burger, imagine you're eating seven pounds of coal in terms of its impact on the planet. Seeing a lot of meat, a number of studies have come out recently shown that red meat consumption increases total cardiac mortality, cancer mortality, and all-cause mortality. I like this cartoon, it's the cows going off to the slaughterhouse saying my only consolation is that by eating us they're killing themselves. From a health crisis, you know, three quarters of the 2.8 trillion dollars that we spend each year on on, uh, on, health care costs, which are really, for the most part, sick care costs, are for chronic diseases that we can largely prevent or even reverse simply by changing diet and lifestyle. This is just one of many studies that showed in large numbers of people walking a half hour a day, not smoking, eating a reasonably healthy diet, and keeping a healthy weight prevented 93% of diabetes, 81% of heart attacks, and so on. And these are probably underestimations. It's probably even more than that. Well how do we treat heart disease in this country? Well we generally do it with a lot of drugs and surgery. And we spent a lot of money. We spent $60 billion on angioplasties and stents. Uh, in, in the last year that we have data on them. And you say, well, that may be a lot of money, but think of all the lives it saves, except that it doesn't. The latest randomized trials, a total of eight of them, were reviewed recently in the Archives of Internal Medicine. They found that unless you're in the middle of having a heart attack, which the vast majority of people get angioplastics and stents are not, they don't prolong life, they don't prevent heart attacks, they don't even reduce angina. And so the same is true for bypass surgery. Unless you're the 1% or 2% of people that have the most severe disease, they don't prolong life or prevent heart attacks either. That's $100 billion for two operations that are dangerous, invasive, expensive, and largely ineffective. Now the the cartoon says, I can operate or you can go on a strict diet. He says, well, you better operate because my insurance doesn't cover a strict diet. And that's been (laughs) the problem that with all this talk about evidence-based medicine, reimbursement is really a much more powerful uh, determinant of how we practice medicine. Now you find the same patterns with prostate cancer. Uh, The New England Journal of Medicine had two major studies, and they showed that only one out of 49 men who is treated for prostate cancer with surgery or radiation actually lives longer because of it. The, The other 48 tend to become either impotent or incontinent or both. So you take a guy who's often in the prime of life in their 50s or 60s, find out they have early stage prostate cancer, scare the hell out of him, they end up having an operation that doesn't really help them, but it, makes them, it maims them in the most personal ways. Now they're wearing diapers and can't have sex for no benefit. But the alternative is to say, well, let's just do watchful waiting. Let's just wait under a sort of Damocles for something bad to happen. And that's not very good. And so the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recently recommended maybe we shouldn't even screen men for prostate cancer because it's too hard to know, know that you have it and, quote, not do anything about it. But here again, there's a third alternative as I'll show you, when you change your diet and lifestyle, you can slow, stop, or reverse the progression of early stage prostate cancer. Now, diabetes is another issue. Type two diabetes is a, is a global uh, epidemic. It's a pandemic uh, uh, already. Uh, a third of Americans are diabetic or pre-diabetic, and in the next eight years it's estimated to be half of Americans. It turns out that lifestyle changes are actually better than drugs at preventing diabetes. This was a major study that was in the New England Journal uh, 10 years ago, and it showed that lifestyle actually worked better than a drug to prevent diabetes. But lifestyle changes are also better than drugs at treating diabetes. This was in the New England Journal a year and a half ago. They had two drugs to lower blood sugar, and they found that it didn't work nearly as well to prevent the complications of diabetes as doing it through lifestyle. And the complications of diabetes are pretty awful. You know, heart attacks, strokes, amputations, blindness, kidney failure, and so on. But if you get someone's blood sugar down through diet and lifestyle, you can prevent all of these complications, both the human costs as well as the economic costs. So what are we doing? Well, it's what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get just walking a half an hour a day, and how much love and intimacy and, and social support we have. But it really goes back to a very radical concept, radical in the sense of getting to the root of something, which is what is the cause? And you know, we spend so much time in medicine mopping up the floor around the sink that's overflowing without also turning off the faucet. And it's a simple idea, but it's a powerful one. Because if we can treat the cause, what we find, the cause, by the way, are the lifestyle choices that we make each day for the most part. And if we can make different choices, otherwise the doctor says, take these cholesterol-lowering drugs, take these blood pressure pills, take these, these, uh, the, these uh, pills for, for lowering your uh, blood sugar. And how long do I have to take them? You have to take them forever. It's like, how long do I have to keep mopping up the floor? Well, forever. Well, why don't we just turn off the faucet? Why don't we treat the underlying cause? And then when we do that, we find that our bodies have a remarkable capacity in most cases to begin healing and much more quickly than we had once realized because these biological mechanisms are exquisitely sensitive and highly dynamic. And it's not just lifestyle as prevention, but it's also lifestyle as treatment. I just want to show you a one minute clip from a new documentary called Escape Fire. 25 years ago,
2: I had five restaurants in San Francisco. It was a great life. I smoked six cigars a day. (laughs) 10 cups of coffee, a lot of wine. It was wonderful. And I had a massive heart attack. I was in the hospital for two weeks. I could hardly uh, just about walk three steps, and I'd have to stop and rest. I was popping 20 or 30 nitriles a day but then Dean Ornish was starting his program to see if you can reverse heart disease through lifestyle change. And he went to my doctor and asked if he could approach me. He told Dean, how long is the program? So he said it was a year. And my doctor told him uh, he wouldn't recommend taking me because he didn't think I would live the year. So he figured I was gonna die because I was in such bad shape. And now, 25 years later, and I'm in pretty good shape.
1: (laughs) His doctor, unfortunately, passed away uh, in the meantime. This is a guy who hasn't had chest pain now in 25 years, who literally couldn't walk across the street. That's why I'm so passionate about doing this work. This is the kind of thing that we see all the time in thousands and thousands of patients. So we wondered if maybe this could help prostate cancer as well. And we took men who had biopsy-proven prostate cancer, but who had elected not to be treated for reasons unrelated to the study so that we could then divide them randomly into two groups, ask one group to make these lifestyle changes but not the other, and see what happened without being confounded by the usual chemo and radiation and surgery. And we found that the PSA levels a marker for prostate cancer went up or got worse in the group that didn't change, uh, went down or got better in the group that did, and these differences were highly significant. And they were in direct proportion to the degree of change in lifestyle, which is the same we found in heart disease. The more people change, the more they improve. We did MR spectroscopy showing the tumor activity, shown in red here, was diminishing uh, in this patient after a year, as well as the PSA going down. So taken as a whole, this is really the first and still the only randomized trial showing that the progression of men with early stage prostate cancer can be slowed and stopped and often even reversed simply by making changes in diet and lifestyle. So we wondered what some of the mechanisms might be to help explain that, and we found that gene expression was changed in over 500 genes in just three months, in effect turning on or upregulating the good genes that protect us, downregulating the bad genes that cause inflammation and oxidative stress. We also found that angiogenesis changes. This is the first study to show that. We found that we could downregulate VEGF, which tumors secrete to cause blood vessels to grow and feed them. Drugs like Avastin and Nexavar inhibit VEGF, but it costs $100,000 a year per person to take. This is, again, for free. It's just the same lifestyle change. We found we could cut depression scores in half simply by changing diet and lifestyle, comparable or even better than what you get with antidepressants. These social networks are so powerful that if your friends are obese, you're 45% more likely to get to be obese. If your friends' friends are obese, 25%. If your friends' friends' friends are obese, even 10%, even if you've never met them.
3: Coronary artery disease, is the leading killer of women and men in Western civilization. And yet, the truth be known, it is nothing more than a toothless paper tiger that need never exist. And if it does exist, it need never ever progress. This is a foodborne illness. And it was quite striking that in this global review, there were a number of cultures by heritage and tradition that simply uh, lacked any cardiovascular disease. They were plant-based. And so, with that information, and when my wife and I uh, decided to go on this plant-based diet for a year, and then I a- asked cardiology if I could have about 24 patients, which was the number that I could handle, and still carry out my surgical obligation. The 24 patients that I received were, as my late brother-in-law used to say, the, the walking dead. But they were most uh, cooperative, and it was within about, say, 15 months of starting this program, That we had something striking develop. It showed us that indeed with nutrition we could actually not only halt this disease, we could reverse it. What really got our attention was a fellow surgeon at the clinic who at age 44 began to get chest pain. He did not have hypertension, he did not have diabetes, he did not have a strong family history, he was not overweight and cardiology worked him up in October of 1996. Could find nothing. Three weeks later splitting headache, immediately followed by this crushing elephant on his chest, pain in his shoulder down his arm. Joe was having a heart attack, whipped down to the cath lab, start the catheterization, cardiac arrest, resuscitate, and finish the catheterization. And then he's been sent up to the floors and discharged three days later, but very depressed. Why? Because what they identified was that, his left anterior descending coronary artery in the front of the heart. The entire lower third was moth-eaten and diseased, over too long a segment to have stents, too far down the artery to have a bypass. So he was very depressed about this, so my wife Ann and I had him out to the house with his wife for supper two weeks after his heart attack. Joe, you've been eating this typical Western diet. You got the typical Western disease. We've got 10 years of data. How about going plant-based? Okay, yes, I'll give it a shot. They couldn't offer me anything else. He became the absolute personification of commitment to plant-based nutrition. He then had another angiogram, follow-up angiogram. It was really quite striking and exciting to see what actually can happen when you give the body every opportunity it can. The healing capacity is incredible. So now let's talk a little bit about how do you injure the artery in the first place. What seems to be going wrong? How do those 90% of heart attacks occur? You will see here the artery is divided and what you're looking at in the first series on the left is that when you start eating that cheeseburger, the pizza, the milkshake, your blood flow gets sticky and certain elements like your endothelial cells get sticky, your LDL cholesterol gets sticky, and then the LDL bad cholesterol migrates into the subendothelial space, where it sets up this absolute cauldron of inflammation. And that cauldron of inflammation begins making inflammatory enzymes that gradually begin to thin out this delicate cap over the plaque. Gets thinner and thinner until it's as thin as a cobweb. And then the sheer force of blood, going over that thinned-out plaque ruptures. And now we have spillage of plaque content into the flowing blood, which activates our platelets, our clotting factor. And now we have the beginning of a clot, a thrombosis, which is in and of itself self-propagating. So in a matter of minutes, now we have an artery that is totally blocked. And all the downstream heart muscle has been deprived of oxygen and nutrients, starts to die. But there is something absolutely magically exciting about this series because if I can convince you that all you have to do is change your nutrition so your internal biochemistry is such that you will not injure or thin out the cap over your plaque, you will actually diminish your plaque and you will strengthen the cap over the plaque. How do we do this? It's very easy. We avoid the foods that injure the endothelium. What are they? Even pure virgin olive oil, corn oil, soybean oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, coconut oil, palm oil, dairy, anything with a mother or a face, meat fish, chicken, and turkey, and also caffeine and coffee, and fructose. All right, what are you going to eat? All those marvelous whole grains for your cereal, bread, and pasta. 101 different types of legumes. Vegetables, which are red, yellow, and green leafy, and fruit. But especially the green leafy vegetables like, are like water on the fire. But remember, no oil! Now, conventional cardiology with all those procedures and all that expense there's high mortality, high morbidity, and sadly, it does not cure the disease and the expense is unsustainable. However, when you're treating causality with plant-based nutrition, no mortality with the diet, no morbidity with the diet, and what happens with the passage of time, the benefits just continue to improve. And for those who in the future are coming down with cardiovascular disease, I hope it is gonna be unconscionable not to inform them of the power of this option from which they can thrive.
0: Okay, let's start with why would you do a plant-based diet? Number one is there's a lot of evidence. Culturally, when I say culturally, the countries that eat predominantly plant-based don't tend to have the diseases that the developed world where there is an abundance of this nutrition, particularly animal-based protein. So culturally, there's a lot of evidence. And then there are several studies by, as mentioned, Dr. Dean Ornish, Dr. Esselstyn, Dr. Neil Bernard, uh, Dr. Michael Greger. So there's a lot of evidence that backs this. It's also very sustainable because people do love eating carbohydrates and plant-based is pretty much carbohydrates. The different, there are different types of carbs that are good carbs and bad carbs, as you can see why sometimes plant-based diets do fail. One of probably the most proven diet for very severe cardiovascular disease. What do I mean by that? When you have um, stent placed or cardiac bypass, eating any amount of animal protein does increase your LDL. And as we know, oxidized LDL, not just LDL, or the lousy cholesterol, but the oxidized version of it, the one that is more brittle and breaks away and can cause final blockage or blood clot is what we want to avoid when you have that plant-based hands-down wins, particularly if you remove oils. And then again, when you have very high cholesterol, if you have a genetic trait for high cholesterol, plant-based diets do work. Metabolic syndrome, there's a lot of evidence that removing the oils like Dr. Esselstyn mentions in his talk is very important to reduce metabolic syndrome. And the last one is if you have been eating predominantly a standard American diet or the SAD diet, the easiest transition is to a plant-based diet. Because going into eating um, the high animal protein and vegetables, I tend to tend to see people moving more towards the animal protein and still struggling to lose weight or insulin resistance or their cholesterol. Now, if plant-based diets were so magical, why isn't everybody on it? Let's talk about who will find it easy. Number one, if for religious and ethnic reasons you don't eat animals, it's an easy transition. In this particular group, um, since I'm South Asian in origin, a lot of South Asians do present to my office. And one of the things, the greater challenges I find, is not removal of the yogurt or removal of dairy or removal of egg and fish, but it's actually the removal of oils. People find it difficult to cook without oils and that's a skill that we have to develop. Let's talk about why this is difficult, because what I have seen is the marketing of olive oils has done such a wonderful job that we're left with the impression that it is absolutely good for the heart. If that's so, A good chunk of the population that consumes olive oil should not have any cardiovascular disease. And as we know, 50% of them do have. It's a flip of a coin whether oils work for you. And again, using olive oil as it should be used, which is not heating, but can be used to drizzle over salad or drizzle over roasted vegetables is how we ask people to use it if they have to use olive oil. But if you see how Dr. Esselstyn mentions in his talk is, remove even olive oils. Now studies have shown that olive oil consumption is associated with some degree of cardiovascular risk so I will say if this is a very difficult one for you to do that maybe going completely plant-based and oil-free is not an easy transition. And then the most important thing is eating of oils when used in cooking does increase what is called advanced end glycation products which is the destruction of your proteins and may not be useful if you're high switch over to a plant-based but prefer to cook everything in oil. Uh, people who will find this plant-based diet difficult is very obvious on the surface is if you're a predominantly a meat eater there is a diet for you but it's definitely not going to be plant-based or the transition may not be easy though I will say when people are really seeking health, they find the transition easy and they will make that effort and they find it sustainable eating plants and cooking plants is a lot of work you need to have the skill of cooking Um, and in today's day and age i believe this is something that is easily developed because we have a lot of information on how to cook plants and um, the taste of plants when you remove oil it is enhanced by the use of herbs and spices so therefore there's an art to cooking Make it palatable. Remove the bitterness of certain plants. Some plants can be eaten raw, but most plants have to be processed by chopping or cutting, slicing, cooking, grinding, and doing it in the right way. Helps food be very palatable. Uh, What are the loopholes? This is where I find plant-based diets. People tend to fail. If you look, both speakers mentioned cardiovascular disease. In practice, what I've noticed is when you have very high insulin resistance, getting the sugar down with a plant-based diet at the start is very difficult. It takes a very long time. I'm not sure if it's because people don't remove enough of the oils or they don't eat enough variety of plants, but that I have found to be a great challenge. The other reason it fails to give results is when you eat too many grains, dried fruits and fruits in general these sugars uh, these foods will increase your sugar surges and does not help you overcome sugar addiction that is a huge problem a lot of people who transfer from a standard American diet to a plant-based diet still are addicted to sugar and tend to do more fruits and grains and don't feel as well and then of course if you do uh, cannot do plants but you do too many of the fruits you tend to have severe insulin resistance um, then the next diet which Dr. Sarah Hallberg is going to talk about is probably for you but I also want to mention one other big loophole in a plant-based diet is when you have gluten sensitivity. Being both plant-based and gluten sensitive can be very difficult. However. I find that when people switch from a standard American diet to a plant-based, initially they get a very good results, and then they start declining. It's because of the gluten that is present in many of the foods that they eat. When you become gluten sensitive, it's not just the wheat, rye, and barley. It's also the maize or corn that has to be removed, which makes preparation of food very difficult. Therefore, I would say if you have autoimmune conditions or you develop skin rashes or difficulty losing weight, uh, hair falling, difficulty with sleep, difficulty with bowel movements, the plant-based diet you're doing is not very suitable for you. And if you're moving towards a lot of high gluten, highly processed uh, so-called plant-based meats and whole grains, I find you may not get the right results. It is also very important to note, many of the proponents of plant-based diets are also avid in their activity, which means exercising. They are runners or they weight lift, as you may have seen in many of the documentaries like Folks Over Knives or What the Health or even The Game Changers. Health is an approach which is very holistic. When I say holistic, not H-O-L-I, but W-H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C, Because you got to put in your activity, you got to look at the nutrition, you look got to look at the management of stress and how you prepare your food. So yes, if you have gluten sensitivity or you are unable to prepare a variety of plants and tend to be more whole grade, maybe you want to get some help and how to prepare a very robust and healthy plant-based approach for your cardiovascular and metabolic syndrome. So the next topic is going to be a talk by Dr. Sarah Hallberg. If, like I said, you have severe insulin resistance and your sugar spike despite a plant-based diet and you think you're doing it right, the next diet may actually help you, which is the low-carb, high-fat diet.
4: I'm an obesity doctor. I have the honor of working with a group of people subject to the last widely accepted prejudice, being fat. These people have suffered a lot by the time they see me. Shame, guilt, blame, and outright discrimination. The attitude that many take, including those in healthcare, is that these people are to blame for their situation. If they could just control themselves, they wouldn't be overweight, and they're not motivated to change. Please let me tell you, this is not the case. The blame, if we've got to extend some here, has been with our advice, and it's time we change that. Obesity is a disease. It's not something created by lack of character. It's a hormonal disease, and there are many hormones involved, and one of the main ones is a hormone called insulin. Most obese individuals are resistant to this hormone, insulin. So when someone is resistant to insulin, the body's response to this is to just make more of it and insulin levels will rise and for a while, years even, this is going to keep up and blood sugar levels can remain normal. However, usually it can't keep up forever and even at those elevated levels of insulin are not enough to keep blood sugar in the normal range, so it starts to rise. That's diabetes. Almost 50% of adult Americans now have diabetes or prediabetes, but that's hardly everyone who has issues with insulin. Because as I was saying, people have elevated insulin levels due to insulin resistance for years, even decades before the diagnosis of even prediabetes is made. Plus, it's been shown that 16 to 25% of normal weight adults are also insulin resistant. The trouble with insulin resistance is if it goes up, makes us hungry, and the food we eat much more likely to be stored as fat. Insulin is our fat storage hormone. So we can start to see how it's going to be a problem for diseases like obesity and metabolic issues like diabetes. But what if we trace this problem back to the beginning and we just didn't have so much glucose around that insulin needed to deal with? Let's take a look at how that could be. Everything you eat is either a carbohydrate, a protein, or a fat. And they all have a very different effect on glucose and therefore insulin levels, as you can see on the graph. So when we eat carbohydrates, our insulin and glucose are going to spike up fast. And with proteins, it looks a lot better. But take a look at what happens when we eat fat. Essentially nothing. A flat line. And this is going to wind up being very important. So, now I want to translate that graph for you into a real-world situation. I want you to go back and think about the last time you ate an American version of Chinese food. We all know there's rules associated with this, right? And the first rule is, you're going to overeat. Because the stop signal doesn't get sent until you are literally busting at the seams. Rule number two is, in an hour, you're starving. Why? Well, because the rice in that meal caused glucose and insulin to skyrocket, which triggered hunger, fat storage, and cravings. So if you're insulin resistant to begin with and your insulin levels are already higher, you really are hungrier all the time. And we have this set up. Eat carbs, your glucose goes up, your insulin goes up, and you have hunger and fat storage. At its root, diabetes is a state of carbohydrate toxicity. And insulin resistance is essentially a state of carbohydrate intolerance. So why, oh why, do we want to continue to recommend to people to eat them? The American Diabetes Association guidelines specifically state that there is inconclusive evidence to recommend a specific carbohydrate limit. But those guidelines go right on to say what we all know. Uh, Carbohydrate intake is the single biggest factor in blood sugar levels and therefore need for medication. These guidelines then go on to say, hey, look, if you're taking certain diabetic medications, you actually have to eat carbs. Otherwise, your blood sugar can go too low. Okay, so let's take a look at the vicious cycle that that advice just set up. So it's eat carbs, so you have to take medicine. Then you have to eat more carbs so you avoid the side effect of those medications. And around and around we go. Even worse is that nowhere in the ADA guidelines is the goal of reversing type 2 diabetes. This needs to be changed because type 2 diabetes can be reversed. Consider carbs. First, here's a shocker for you. We don't need them, seriously. Our minimum daily requirement for carbohydrates is zero. We have essential amino acids, those are proteins, essential fatty acids. A nutrient is essential if we have to have it to function and we can't make it from something else. We make glucose, plenty of it, all the time. It's called gluconeogenesis. So we don't need them. The overconsumption of them is making us very sick, yet we are continuing to recommend to patients to consume close to, if not more, than half of their total energy intake every day from them. It doesn't make sense. Let's talk about what does. Cutting carbs, a lot. Yes, in my clinic, we teach patients to eat with carbs as the minority of their intake, not the majority. Low-carb intervention works so fast, that we can literally pull people off of hundreds of units of insulin in days to weeks. And if they start eating excessive carbs again, it will. So no, not cured, but they don't have diabetes any longer. It's resolved, and it can stay that way as long as we keep away the cause. So what does this look like then? How does somebody eat this way? Well, first let me tell you what it's not. Low-carb is not zero-carb, and it is not high-protein. These are common criticisms that are so frustrating because they're not true. Next, if we take the carbs out, what are we going to put in? Because remember, there's only three macronutrients. If one goes down, one has to go up. My patients eat fat and a lot of fat is the only macronutrient that's gonna keep our glucose, blood sugar, and insulin levels low, and that is so important. I want you to now hear my simple rules for eating. These rules, you have to remember, are even gonna be more important if you are one of the tens of millions of Americans who have trouble with insulin levels. Rule number one, if it says light, low-fat, or fat-free, stays in the grocery store, because if they took the fat out, they put carbs and chemicals in. Rule number two, eat food. The most important rule in low-carb nutrition. Real food does not come in a box, and no one should have to tell you real food is natural. You should know that when you look at it. (laughs) Don't eat anything you don't like. And eat when you're hungry, don't eat when you're not, no matter what the clock says. And number five is a simple way to remember what we want to avoid. No GPS, no grains, no potatoes, and no sugar. That last one is a biggie, right? No grains? Yeah, no grains. But we have to have them. Nope, they're a carb. But whole grains are so good for us. Well, first of all, there are actually very few foods out there that are truly whole grain, even when they say they are. Most foods that purport themselves to be whole grain are highly processed and the fiber benefit ruined, or they're coming with highly refined flour. Usually both of these things. So if you are one of the truly insulin sensitive people, you can eat real whole grain. But if you are in the enormous slice of our population with insulin issues, it's making things worse. There are dozens of randomized control trials looking at low-carb intervention for things like diabetes, cardiovascular risk factors, obesity. They're consistent. It works. There are even a large uh, number of studies showing that low-carb nutrition decreases inflammatory markers, which is making it really exciting for diseases like cancer. What's the problem then? Why is this not everywhere? Why isn't low-carb the norm? There's two big reasons. Number one, status quo. It is hard to break. There are many agendas involved. We got this notion that low fat was the way to go decades ago. But a recent study just came out showing that there was zero randomized control evidence to recommend to Americans to remove the fat from our diet. And that's how the carbs got added in. It was essentially a huge experiment on millions of people, and it failed miserably. The second reason we don't see it everywhere is money. Don't be fooled. There's a lot of money to be made from keeping you sick. The solution to the diabetes epidemic in my clinic is exceedingly clear. Stop using medicine to treat food. And for a disease whose root cause is carbohydrates, take away the carbohydrates or at least cut them. So the low carb, high fat diet, which Dr. Sarah Holberg really presents
0: very passionately may work and may be the solution for some folks who are struggling with very severe metabolic syndrome. So it is a really a great option to get your sugars down. It is helpful in reducing that severe insulin and leptin resistance. It's a easier transition from a standard American diet. Here what you get to do is remove the processed foods, particularly processed carbs, increase the good fats, whole fats, and good quality protein. It is not a high protein diet as she mentioned. It's predominantly 30 to 38 percent of good fats. So almond flour, muffins, and coconut flour pancakes would be the kind of food in addition to a lot of vegetables. The problem with this, as you can see, is caloric intake can get very high and after initial weight loss, because you reduce insulin resistance, there may be some weight gain. The other big loophole I find is if you struggle with high cholesterol, this low carb, high fat diet may drive up your cholesterol levels. I would say when you go on a low-carb, high-fat, or even if you go on a plant-based diet, it's extremely important to get certain tests done. Your cholesterol profile, your omega-3 index, and also inflammatory markers. So you've tried plant-based, you've gone on a low-carb diet and nothing has worked, and you don't mind eating animals at this point, then maybe the next diet is the one that's appropriate for you. Listen to this video and I will dissect it getting into who it might benefit and who may not benefit from it.
5: Um, So I'm going to talk about meat and a little bit of other stuff. Uh, So I've got some conflicts. I've written this book. I'm the CEO of MeatRx, which we just heard, and I eat a lot of meat, so I'm I'm, I'm heavily biased in favor of this. What is a carnivore diet? Since I wrote the book, I've taken the liberty to to be able to define it the way I like to define it. So I consider it a nutrient-dense, animal source food with the complete elimination or limitation of plants to the degree necessary to provide health. Uh, you know, many people will just do fatty red meats. You know, when you don't have carbohydrates, you need energy. Fat seems to be a good source of that. Protein's not a particularly good energy source. And there's a lot of people that are kind of in this sort of carnivore-ish space, hyper-carnivore, keto-carnivore. I wanna call it meato. So why does it seem to help? I mean, I'm not gonna say I know for sure, but I've got some speculation. You know, one thing is, and we heard about satiety. I mean, appetite regulation, we see it with a ketogenic diet. Satiety is very important. Uh, whether it w- results in a, in, a, in a calorie deficit or not, whether there's a metabolic advantage, you know, David Ludwig would, might, might, might argue about that. Certainly, we you know protein seems to be an advantageous uh, uh, macronutrient for not putting on fat. Craving and addiction extinction, I think this is something that is very unique and, we t- and I, our last speaker just talked about getting rid of sweet and I think that's a very important part of this and get rid of junk. I mean it's hard to make carnivore junk food. I mean there's people trying but it's really hard. See when you have glucose it's very stable. Uh, and resolution of hyperinsulinemia on a carnivore diet seems to help with that, just like many people see on a ketogenic diet. So those things all seem to be favorable for why it seems to work. It will not make you live longer, or we can't make those claims, it's not going to save you from a disease. It might make you healthier, and there's a lot of people that has, it will definitely cure you of veganism. (laughs) The only i can say definitively
0: as you can listen to um dr sean baker i really like the honesty in all of the uh, information he provided he says i don't know if this diet is going to help you live long i don't know if it's going to pre- help you prevent cancer i just know it works for him that's why he is a great proponent of it who does a carnivore diet work for here are Here's my take on it from all of the information I've gathered from people who have gone on a carnivore diet. It is really a great transition for somebody who hates vegetables and they are unable to go on a plant-based or even the low-carb diet without using a lot of processed foods because a carnivore diet almost eliminates all of your processed food. And I agree, it removes your addiction for sugar because you are so full, it doesn't uh, increase that insulin resistance, the hunger, the requirement for more sugar. And I will admit this, I don't know why, but it seems to work very well for some people in whom nothing else has worked. There there are some um, theoretical problems with this, but there's also some practical um, loopholes in the information Dr. Baker does um, present. First, like I mentioned, I loved his honesty of there's not enough duration, not enough studies to say this is a great diet for everyone. Number two, I have seen in my practice a cholesterol increase and this can be a challenge. Yes, maybe cholesterol, high cholesterol is not a big deal for a lot of people who seem to be looking at this data. But if you have a high oxidized LDL guaranteed it is a big deal. If you have a lot of inflammatory markers, it is a big deal. I want to really address the issue about diverticulosis. This, I don't agree with Dr. Baker. Diverticulosis is not something that you hear of in many of the South Asian countries where predominantly the diet is plant-based. Diverticulosis is exclusively a disease of the Western world. And it could be the high processed food, it may not be it's just the meat, but it's a combination of foods. But diverticulosis is predominantly a developed nation's problem. And it is due to a loss of fiber. And remember, I remember reading about um, bowel movements and one of the statements a very famous doctor made, Dr. Burkitt, who after whom Burkett's lymphoma is named, he mentioned, smaller the bowels the larger the hospitals. So, bowel movements are very important, and we know right now from science higher the fiber, lesser the diverticulosis. And then, evolution uh, Dr. Baker mentions about what is that plant that's available everywhere in the world. Well, when you really look at it, there is no animal that's available everywhere in the world. The, even the cows are not the same as we know about the A1 and A2 protein. So, every continent every country has its own species of animals yes man eats animals but man also eats plants and that are locally and regionally grown so there's a lot about evolution there's a lot about regionality that needs to be mentioned so i'm not sure that particular argument holds good that what is that plant that is there everywhere it's not the same animal that we eat everywhere It's therefore it's not the same plants that we eat in every country that we go to so as you can see all of these three diets have their pros and cons what is going to work for you is really what is sustainable but all three diets have one thing in common they all remove processed foods they all remove refined sugars so if you can achieve those two things removal of processed foods and refined sugars I truly believe you will be able to be successful with any dietary changes that you make. If there's any other questions, please post them in the comment. And as I mentioned initially, if there's some particular diet that worked really well for you, let us know how it worked. And if it didn't work well for you, what do you think happened that made you fail? That's my question for this particular episode. And once again, thank you. Make sure to subscribe, give us, a, give us the thumbs up and share this video with whom you believe will benefit. Remember, health is intuitive and that's your business. Disease is the business of medicine and that's what we go to medical school for. I'm Dr. Chalam, founder of Holistic and Integrative Center of Novi,
1: the best place for you to find your best doctor and that will always be you.